If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In recent weeks, economic turmoil in the UK has brought renewed attention to the Bank of England. But how much do you actually know about the history of Britain's central bank? and its activities over the past three centuries. Well, in today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're exploring that history with Professor Anne Murphy. Anne is Executive Dean and Professor of History at the University of Portsmouth. And as always with this series, we've got a mixture of questions that you've submitted via our social media channels and popular internet search queries. The questions were put to Anne by Rob Attar. So I thought it would be good to begin with the Bank of England today and just a simple question, which is a popular online search query, which is what does the Bank of England do? So the Bank of England today does a whole variety of things. So it's the UK's central bank um, and that means that it has a role in keeping our financial system stable and effective, uh, a kind of oversight and regulation role. It also produces banknotes Um, And it regulates other payment systems. So it has responsibility for making sure that we can pay for uh, the goods and services that we need. It also, and this is probably its biggest and most controversial role at the moment, has responsibility for setting monetary policy uh, through interest rates and the control of money supply. And it's charged with doing this while also trying to keep inflation low and stable. So it has targets for inflation uh, that it has to maintain. And this, of course, is is one of its its troublesome roles at the moment because we're in a high inflationary environment and it will be difficult for it to raise interest rates uh, because also the economy is struggling. Finally, uh, it has a role which is important for historians and people who are interested in history. It has a role in producing research and educational resources and maintaining its archive and its museum. Um, It has a truly wonderful archive of resources uh, forming uh, a real history of banking history back to the late 17th century. But it also tells us a lot about wider social, economic and cultural history. I also say not many people know this, but the Bank of England has a museum and I would highly recommend a visit to that museum. Okay, great. So let's dig into that history now. And our first listener question comes from Adresito83 on Instagram, who asked, when and why was the Bank of England created? So it was created in 1694. 
Uh, and it was uh, an accident of war, although that wasn't its sole purpose. There'd been a lot of people looking towards other European countries, particularly countries like Sweden, uh, and also uh, to the Netherlands as well, and saying that the country needs a national bank, a bank that can help the circulation of money, a bank that can support trade, and a bank that can support the economy. So this, this, there's this kind of underlying need for an institution that will help the economy grow and help the economy compete, particularly in trading terms. Then in 1688, uh, uh, James II is uh, deposed and William III, uh, the Dutch William III, takes the throne. This is in the Glorious Revolution. One of the first things that William does is take the country to war against France. Now, this is the first time, really, that Britain has been engaged in a significant and costly conflict. And at the time, it doesn't really have the mechanisms to raise the kind of money that is needed to prosecute these wars. And that's a problem because actually you can't uh, at this time really claim any kind of technological advances uh, over your enemies. It's really difficult to sort of fight them into submission. You have to spend them into submission. And there, there's lots of commentary around at the time that say things like, it's the longest purse, not the longest sword that wins the day uh, in these wars. So you have to be financially competent. And of course, William has been in the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands have been very good at getting financially competent. Uh, they use their financial competence to drive Spain, who have colonised uh, the Netherlands, out. So William brings some advisors who, who have that kind of competence. At the same time, though, people within England are looking to Europe and looking to these examples in Italy, in Sweden, uh, and in the Netherlands for examples of how, how you grow financial competence and how you raise money. They start off funding this war by raising money from rich merchants. Um, that soon runs out, those sources of funds, so they have to start to get innovative. Um, and they introduce... Uh, expedients that have been used elsewhere. So annuities, uh, they sell long-term annuities where individuals pay over certain amounts to the state and for that they're guaranteed regular interest payments over a long term. They introduced the first state lottery, uh, which is uh, very exciting for many people. Lots of people very interested in investing in the state lottery. It's a lottery that everybody gets a prize from. Uh, so, you know, that, that works extremely well as well. It's very expensive for the state, um, but it, it's very attractive for investors. And they established the Bank of England. And the job of the Bank of England is to raise capital, which it will lend to the government. All of its capital is going to be lent to the government for the purpose of prosecuting this war uh, against France. Again, it's a really popular thing. There are lots of people, lots of merchants, for example, who see it as, as a really good innovation. And they see it as a good innovation because they support the war, they also see it as a good innovation because they perceive that there will be economic benefits uh, from this as well. Uh, so the, uh, the shares are all sold very quickly. Um, there are, I think, 1,268 investors, including the king and queen, but really down to some relatively ordinary people who are, um, who are very supportive of the bank. Uh, as well. The bank is set up within a very short period of time. Uh, so it's a matter of weeks from raising the capital to opening its doors. A very sort of ad hoc arrangement originally starts off with 17 employees in borrowed rooms in Mercer's Hall, uh, and it builds from there. It's never, though, intended to be a permanent institution. It's intended really to um, to cover the costs of war. It has a 12-year charter to start with. There is, I think, the expectation that the government will pay that money back 
at the end of 12 years. And then the Bank of England would either be dissolved or it would it would have to manage on its own as a commercial entity. Um, what happens, of course, is over the course of the 18th century, there are regular wars. The Bank of England embeds itself in that financial position. It becomes the debt manager of choice uh, for the state. And ultimately, it's the place where most public investors would go to manage their lending to the state, to collect their dividends, uh, to collect their annuities, to buy and sell debt as well. So at this early stage, the bank is still a private company. It's not yet an official organ of state. Yes, it's a private company uh, with shareholders all the way through to 1946, uh, when it's nationalised. That complicates things, though, because it always owes a debt to its shareholders to manage their money in a way that secures their profits and acknowledges their stake in running the bank. But at the same time, it relatively early on dismisses the idea that it's going to be a corporate and commercial entity in a traditional way. So, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't engage in broad lending. Uh, for example, it's, it's more concerned with uh, the, the relationship with the state. It sees that relationship with the state very much as its core business. So it becomes intertwined as a servant of two masters, really. It's the servant of the state. It's the servant of the shareholders. Sometimes their interests coalesce. Sometimes, you know, that works extremely well. Sometimes their interests clash and that does create problems for the bank's directors. Now, we had a question on Twitter from Susan Pollitz, and she said, how much of a difference did the formation of the Bank of England make for the country? Oh, that's one of those questions that uh, you you kind of have to answer, I suppose, with a bit of hindsight. Uh, So I would say, with hindsight, a significant difference. It does make an immediate difference in that it helps with the war effort, the effort to win the Nine Years' War, which extends from uh, 1689 uh, through to 1697. That kind of ends in an uneasy draw, but a draw that's kind of more on the the side of of England than it is on the side of France. Britain goes to war again uh, in the early 18th century and then again and again and again over that period and the bank becomes more embedded in providing the services that support war finance. So from that perspective, it's, it's a key development for the country. I would also say that it has a much broader meaning because throughout the 18th century, um, Britain, British government is borrowing money to prosecute wars, and it borrows a lot. Uh, so by 1819, it's indebted to uh, the tune of around 850 million. So, you know, that's a, it's a lot of money for a developing country. And mostly it's borrowing this money from ordinary people. So from doctors and lawyers, uh, from widows and spinsters, from orphans. And it's able to borrow this money because there is the perception that it's a safe borrower, that um, interest payments will be regularly made, that money put with the state is safe. There are some historians um, and economists that argue that this was a this was a pretty immediate thing that um, post glorious revolution the state was perceived as a safe borrower almost immediately because of the switch from the switch from the king being the main borrower to Parliament being the main borrower and Parliament being much more sort of transparent and open and a better borrower. Uh, than the king. That's not the case. Actually, it takes it takes a considerable amount of time, probably to the mid-18th century, for Parliament to establish its credentials as a strong borrower. Early on, um, there are you know, there are problems with payment. There are tax funds that are supposed to fund uh, the interest payments that fall short. There are things that go wrong. 
there's a clash in 1710, 1711 with a change of government when nobody's quite sure whether the new financial system will be supported. There's the very famous South Sea bubble in 1720, which threatens to bring down the whole new edifice uh, of uh, the financial institutions and financial stability that's been set up. So a lot of that, you know, creates uncertainty. The bank is the stable entity that sits behind all of this. And it's the entity that is establishing a real and tangible relationship between the state and the people who are lending the state money. So the bank is the place that you go to transact, you know, to, to lend, to actual sort of lend the state money. It's the place where you go to pick up your dividends. Um, it's the place that is a sort of growing building that represents that stability in a whole variety of different ways. So for me, the, you know, the real answer to the question, what difference does it make, is that it represents the key trust and stability that individuals need in order to keep on lending to the state. And therefore, it is one of the key foundations on which is built Britain's geopolitical success in the 18th century, its capacity to sort of build its empire to ultimately defeat Napoleon uh, in 1815. Obviously, this period coincided with the high point of the transatlantic slave trade. And we had a question um, from Marina CRS 2018 on Instagram, and she asked whether the bank had any connection with that trade. Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. And I think up until relatively recently, uh, we would have said no, no real connection. But actually, I think what we what we acknowledge now is that the bank, like any other 18th century institution, would have been very much intertwined in the profits uh, from the trade in enslaved people. Um, and that would have been through money deposited there, the kind of investments that were made there. The people who visited and who borrowed money from the bank would have had connections uh, with the trade, um, may have been owners of enslaved people or participating in those profits in other ways. After the abolition of the slave trade also, um, many people will know that owners were compensated and the bank was involved in making those payments. So it made the payments uh, to the owners who were being compensated there. And it's important that we note here that the enslaved people were never compensated. Uh, it was uh, the people who had owned uh, those enslaved people who received the compensation. So, although its main roles were not directly part of the trade, uh, the bank was involved in those ways. The bank has also been also very diligent recently in examining its past and considering where there might have been more explicit uh, connections. And uh, there has been uncovered relatively recently the fact that in the 1770s, the bank was given to plantations in Grenada and uh, their enslaved workforces as security on a loan uh, that it gave. When the borrower defaulted on that loan, the bank kind of automatically gained a stake in those plantations by default rather than by its choice. But uh, we, we also have to acknowledge that the bank retained those plantations into the 1790s uh, when they were sold. Um, so this, I think, all speaks to the embeddedness of the systems of slavery in the British economy and the very lasting legacies uh, which we can and should try to both understand and also to acknowledge. Um, listeners might also be interested to know that the Bank of England Museum uh, currently has an exhibition exploring its connections with slavery. Uh, which is on till April 2023, so uh, they can go and uh, and read more about these uh, these things there. Now, actually, at a very similar time as this, you have the Industrial Revolution kicking off in Britain. How far did the Bank of England finances help power that? Um, now, that's a really interesting question because the Bank of England was not overtly lending to industrialists. It figures out quite early on uh, that that kind of lending is complicated. There are, there are too many defaults. It's quite difficult to manage. Um, it's not really very keen 
on uh, on that kind of lending at all. As I said before, it's it it's much much prefers lending to the state, much easier to control. You know, one relationship to manage, and it's quite lucrative. It also arguably does some damage to the financialization process uh, in Britain throughout the 18th century, uh, because the Bank of England, um, particularly after uh, an attempt by um, another bunch of individuals to set up a land bank uh, in the 1690s, it's not keen on rivals. You know, it also has the rivalry of the South Sea Company uh, to contend with. And all of this drives the Bank of England to try and establish a monopoly of banking, particularly in London. It also prevents other banking entities from setting up on a large scale. So this keeps banking in Britain throughout the 18th and into the early 19th century on a relatively small scale. And it tends to mean that the banking system is quite unstable, which makes it difficult for it then to lend money um, to industrialists. There is, of course, another argument that the kind of industrialization that was going on in the late 18th and the early 19th century doesn't require, didn't require huge amounts of capital. And therefore, perhaps the banking system doesn't hold it back. But here we have a counterfactual. If we'd have had a much broader banking system, would industrialization have happened in another way? Would it have happened more quickly? So the short answer is that the bank doesn't really contribute significantly to industrialization, but there is also a more complex answer because, of course, a great deal of industrialization in Britain was driven by the war machine. Uh, so shipbuilding is a huge industry. Um, textiles uh, for soldiers' uniforms uh, is a big industry. And the Bank of England facilitating the funding of the 18th century wars helps to contribute uh, to those forms of industrialization. And it does arguably lay quite a good groundwork uh, for financialization on a grander scale when it does happen. It, it pioneers a lot of banking techniques. And talking about the wars of that time, the I suppose the most significant ones are the Napoleonic Wars that take place towards the end of the 18th century. And I've, I've certainly heard some historians say that the Bank of England played a really pivotal role in Britain's ability to prosecute those wars. Would you agree with that? Yes, it did. Um, and by this time, it has really established itself as secure and trustworthy. It's managing a great deal of the uh, state's debt. So it's managing the initial issues of that debt. Uh, it's managing the payment of, of dividends. Uh, it's managing the state's relationships with many, many, many creditors. It's also operating some very basic stuff uh, for the Treasury and the Exchequer, uh, things like payment systems, etc. It also pays a pivotal role when gold reserves fall short. Uh, so by 1797, the country is really under quite considerable strain and gold reserves have uh, started to diminish. Up until this point, the Bank of England was issuing relatively high denomination notes and it backed those notes by gold. So you could take your bank notes into the bank and you could exchange it for gold. In 1797, that has to be suspended, that connection between banknotes and their sort of physical, tangible value has to be suspended. It cannot be sustained because if it is sustained, the Bank of England will run out of gold. That could have been disastrous and, and some people perceived that it would be disastrous. But again, it was handled very well. So it was handled well by the bank, not necessarily always as compassionately uh, as perhaps would have been good, particularly towards uh, the epidemic of forgery uh, that follows on. But the bank starts to issue um, smaller denomination notes to fill the gap. It does that quite quickly. It does it very efficiently. It's able to scale up its operations to make that happen. There is also another element to this of 
merchants and other business people uh, being very keen to support that process. So that happens around the country, that people getting together saying, actually, yes, we must accept paper money and we must accept paper money has a value. But the bank has a really key role to play in that. Did the bank have a monopoly on banknotes at this time or were were other banks able to issue notes too? So other banks were able to issue notes, uh, not in London, but outside of London. So there's a plethora of of banknotes. There are are all sorts of banknotes everywhere. And this does lead to an epidemic of forgery as well. Now, on a related note, we had another question from Marina CRS 2018. um, And she said, was the bank ever also responsible for minting coins? No, it wasn't. Uh, so the Royal Mint uh, is and was responsible uh, for minting coins. Um, the Royal Mint uh, now in Wales, uh, in Clantrissant. Um, and again, you can visit there. It's a wonderful museum. Um, and you can see the manufacturing uh, process as well. Uh, where the Bank of England comes in is throughout most of the 18th and into the 19th century. Uh, it's the deposit, the repository for bullion. Uh, so bullion coming into the country generally goes to the Bank of England first uh, for storage, for testing. Um, and therefore, it, then it's kind of shipped uh, to and from the mint and again shipped out of the country. Some is made into coin um, some moves on into the monetary system in other ways still to come on the history extra podcast so it's terrified of the wooden buildings that surround it and the potential for fire which might destroy the bank's buildings but also the very precious records that are inside the bank it's also terrified of riot and the gordon riots of 1780 show the bank just how vulnerable it is We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, moving on into the the kind of mid-19th century, uh, Becker's Because on Instagram asked about the Panic of 1866. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so this is a really interesting one. And uh, it's it's often um, thought of as the turning point uh, for the bank's relationship with the broader economy. And we need, we need to go back a little bit uh, to think about what it, what has been going on. Uh, so the bank has embedded itself in the process of state finance, but rather more reluctantly in the process of managing the economy. Uh, 
So if we think of what the bank does today, uh, it has a responsibility for making sure that the economy more generally, not just the financial system, uh, is working well and that any kind of crises or panics are managed. Now, we talked earlier about the Bank of England being the servant of two masters, the servant of the state and the servant uh, of its shareholders. Over a long period of time, there are um, commentators who are saying to the bank and asking the bank to be the entity that kind of supports the economy and smooths out panics and crises. The bank is resistant because that would imply that it would throw its own good money after bad so that, you know, if if uh, bankers behaved irresponsibly, then the Bank of England would be the institution that bailed them out. Um, and it kind of looks to its shareholders and, and thinks, well, why, why should we be? You know, why should we be the institution that bails out profligacy or incompetence? Um, you know, that, that shouldn't be our job. And we owe it to our shareholders to make sure that that doesn't become our job. On the other hand, you know, it's, it looks to the state and the state is saying, well, actually, you know, we, we need to smooth the economy. We don't, we don't want crises. Crises infect not just the banker that might have been incompetent, but they affect all sorts of uh, other entities as well. There's a kind of domino effect if one banker goes wrong, you know, that becomes, you know, becomes insolvent, then that affects everyone else. Probably over the period from the mid-18th century through to the mid-19th century, the bank then has stepped into different crises to try and do that, but it has never explicitly said we will. And that's key. So it doesn't give that guarantee. Uh, so in the 1760s, there's the Denerville uh, crisis, um, which uh, it is a, a merchant and a banker in the Netherlands who goes bust, and that you know that creates crisis in Europe. There's the Alexander Fordyce collapse in 1772, and the bank kind of steps into that to smooth things out. What's going on in 1866 is the collapse of uh, a discount house uh, called Overend Gurney and Co. A discount house, it, they're essentially bankers who are making their money buying and selling bills of exchange uh, for profit. It's a potentially very, very lucrative business, but it's all based on short-term borrowing and lending. And in order to make that work, you have to ensure that your institution is quite liquid. So you have a lot of money to meet uh, the uh, needs of uh, borrowers. When they, you know, when they come in and demand their money back, you need to be able uh, to provide that. Where Overend Gurney goes wrong is that it starts putting its capital into long-term investments, particularly railways, uh, which offer some, you know, some really nice investment, interesting investment opportunities in the mid-19th century. Overend Gurney puts far too much money into these long-term investments, and it creates a liquidity crisis for itself. Um, it then tries to solve that liquidity crisis uh, by essentially floating on the stock market. It sells shares in order to raise capital. Um, that goes reasonably well, but as with so many of these things, the timing is off. It hits the market at a time when share prices are going down, uh, bond markets are collapsing, the economy is struggling. And as a consequence of this, Overend Gurney really starts to struggle. And like any large struggling financial institutions, it starts to threaten those uh, around it and then ultimately threatens the financial stability of the country. So the bank has to make this choice, not to step in to save Overend Gurney, but to step in to stabilise the economy. Historians have looked at this as the turning point in the bank's relationship with itself as, as this kind of lender of last resort, the, the lender that everybody uh, can go to. Um, and a lot of historians have said, well, you know, 1866, that's the point in which the bank develops a policy that says it will become the lender of last resort. It actually doesn't. And I think more recent historical work has become far more nuanced 
uh, about this. Um, and they realise that the bank is, is still concerned with its shareholders and still concerned with its duty to its shareholders. Indeed, one of the, the bank's directors, Thomas Hankey, uh, who, who wrote a treatise called The Principles of Banking, he called the lender of last resort theory a mischievous doctrine. Um, and he was particularly cross with the kind of people who were arguing that the bank should become the lender of last resort. These were people like Walter Badgett um, and particularly his publication, The Economist, who are arguing very strongly in favour of this. And Hankey calls it a mischievous doctrine because he feels that it would take away responsibility from bankers, allowing them to do what they please so that there would always be a backstop, because, you know, there would always be someone there to save them. Um, and this really is, is where the bank ends up, that it has an underlying commitment that it will support the economy, but it's never going to make these bold statements about we will be the lender of last resort, nor does it build up its reserves to do that in the decades after 1866. So we have we have the kind of theory and the, its principles not really developing precisely in that way, but also its practical arrangements aren't developing in a way that suggests that it will guarantee being a lender of last resort. Now, early, early on in our conversation, you mentioned that the bank remained a private company until I think it was just after the Second World War. Uh, why did why did it change then? Why did the government then decide to make it into a more official organ of state? Uh, so this is consistent really with the kind of broader monetary changes that are going on in the wake of the Second World War. Uh, there's a really strong sense, uh, as many listeners will know, uh, that one of the key causes of the Second World War uh, was um, financial and economic distress um, and that the sort of beggar thy neighbour policies, monetary policies that were being pursued by countries prior to the Second World War really led to conflict. Uh, so there was a whole monetary architecture that was put in place uh, towards the end of the Second World War uh, with the establishment of uh, the IMF, for example, um, and the Bretton Woods agreements uh, that created what was thought to be an architecture that would help to prevent conflict in the future. And nationalising the Bank of England at that point was part of that process. And nowadays, of course, one of the bank's best known functions is the fact that it sets interest rates. Yeah. And Claire Munro94 on Instagram wanted to know uh, when and why did that first begin? So the bank's role changed in 1997. Uh, when New Labour came to power. Uh, and one of the first things that Gordon Brown did uh, in his chancellorships was uh, make the Bank of England independent. Um, and that gave it control uh, of interest rates. So the Bank of England sets a bank rate. Other lending organisations then adapt their bank rate in response to that rate, which is why there's uh, such, such a huge variety of mortgage rates, uh, for example. Um, the reason that Gordon Brown did this uh, was, I think there are a number of reasons, really. One, uh, as new Labour, as a Labour government, um, Gordon Brown was demonstrating their competence to the city, really um, uh, underpinning the kind of trust uh, that the city needs to have in the government and the government uh, needs to have in the city. The other big central banks, so the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve, were independent, making the Bank of England independent was consistent with that. And I think there was also a really genuine attempt because New Labour really wanted to be able to act in the economy without the accusation that they were manipulating monetary policy and risking stability, that handing over that those policies to the Bank of England was a way of demonstrating that and allowing New Labour the freedom uh, to act in the economy in the way that it felt uh, was necessary. So within this system, um, then, monetary policy becomes separated uh, from fiscal policy. So uh, the act of controlling inflation um, and managing interest rates 
is is uh, the Bank of England's responsibility. Raising taxes or lowering taxes and broader fiscal policy is the government's responsibility. This should help to protect the economy. This should work well. The Bank of England doesn't just set interest rates on its own. It has a monetary policy committee, which includes five members from the bank um, and external members for external members, all with relevant expertise. They come together eight times a year and they, they look at the evidence and set policy uh, based on the evidence. Does it work? Well, initially it did. And I think in the early part of the 21st century, uh, the Bank of England was really seen as very highly competent and effective in its role. The financial crises of 2007-8 kind of changed all that. And of course, what we're seeing at the moment is the failure of the interest rates can control inflation policy. Raising interest rates sufficiently to control inflation now would be extremely damaging to the economy. Um, and I think we're, you know, we're recognising um, that in, in the words of one of the bank's former governors, Mervyn King, many, if not most, economic problems are not amenable to monetary policy solutions. So in other words, monetary policy alone cannot deliver the kind of stability that an economy in crisis needs. Okay, so we've got just a few questions left. Um, So obviously, we've been talking about the Bank of England, which is the central bank for the UK. But um, obviously, when the Bank of England was founded, this was before the formation of the United Kingdom. So we did have a question uh, come in about Scotland. Uh, Stabby Squirrel on Instagram uh, wanted to know how the Bank of England's history compares with that of the Bank of Scotland. Yes, so the Bank uh, Bank of Scotland was established around about the same time uh, as the Bank of England. It was established in 1695 as a commercial bank, though. So its aim really was to develop trade by increasing the circulation of money. As we heard earlier, uh, there were merchants in London um, looking towards the establishment of an, a national bank in England. And their intention was very similar, you know, to develop trade, increase the circulation of money. The Bank of England, though, was diverted by the wars of the 18th century onto a very different path. The Bank of Scotland stayed on a more commercial path. Uh, it issued notes early and in lower denominations than the Bank of England. Uh, so it helped the economy of Scotland in that way. Um, it also stepped into branch banking, much earlier than the Bank of England. It was doing that uh, from the late 18th century. Um, much more competition was allowed in Scotland, which in some senses was a very good thing. In some senses, probably created more crises. Um, and the Bank of Scotland tended to survive this quite well and uh, did have a role in supporting the economy um, when other banks uh, went bust. Its more recent history, though, is a little bit more complicated and also led by its commercial nature, uh, which has perhaps uh, brought it into um, more adventures than it maybe should have um, and has ended up uh, with a number of more recent mergers. Most recently, of course, the Bank of Scotland was acquired by Lloyd's TSB. Uh, so it kind of deviates from the Bank of England path in, in that sense as well. Great. And we had uh, another listener question came in from 90 Pend on Instagram, and they wanted to know, why is the bank known as the old lady? So um, this relates to uh, a cartoon that was published in 1797. And this, as we mentioned before, uh, related to the suspension uh, of the exchange of banknotes for gold. To understand why the Bank of England is feminised, though, we have to go back a little bit. Uh, so Britannia is the symbol of the Bank of England and has been the symbol of the Bank of England uh, right from the start. And she ties in nicely with other feminised symbols of the financial system uh, in the late 17th and early 18th century. Uh, so we have Lady Credit, uh, who represents credit. Um, and she's Lady Credit because credit is fickle. Um, you know, when th there are times when she'll sort of dance around you and she'll flirt with you and she will, you know, she will be your, your friend. Um, and there are times when she will, she will cast you away. 
The South Sea Company was also feminized, particularly in the wake of the South Sea bubble. And she was feminized in quite problematic ways. So she was characterized as a whore, um, you know, as as a fallen woman after the collapse uh, of the South Sea bubble. She'd behaved badly. She had deliberately sold her virtue for money. The Bank of England's Britannia tends to avoid all of those uh, connotations. The Bank of England's Britannia kind of stays pure throughout the 18th century and becomes very much embedded in its image. Uh, So in the 18th century bank, uh, walking into the banking hall, there's a big statue of Britannia that sits over uh, the entrance. Her image is stamped everywhere and she's an image that connects very strongly to the state. Uh, So she sits on a bank of money, Uh, she looks out over the sea, she has a cornucopia pouring out riches to the country. Uh, She's also a strong symbol of Protestant government and Protestant monarchy. So the bank, in using Britannia, is really tying itself into the stability of the state. In 1797, with this period of crisis and uh, the suspension of gold payments, there's this sense that that uh, that symbol is being undermined. Um, so I'm I'm looking at the the cartoon now. So it's a cartoon produced by James Gilray uh, in 1797, and it depicts Pitt the Younger, um, you know, attempting to kiss, shall we say, uh, an elderly lady uh, who represents the bank. And the elderly lady is dressed in uh, a dress of one and two pound notes, and she's sitting on uh, a chest of gold. And she's screaming that she's being violated. Uh, so the, the speech bubble says, murder, murder, rape, murder. Oh, you villain, what have I kept my honour uh, untainted for so long to have it uh, broke up by you at last? Um, and what's being depicted here is, you know, is a real sort of attack on the bank in a very sort of feminized symbol, which makes her very vulnerable, but makes her worthy of protection as well. Uh, So where does does the the phrase the old lady come from? It comes most directly from that cartoon, the depiction of an old lady who is vulnerable, but is worthy of protection and deserves protection. Uh, But that's a much longer history of uh, the bank as a kind of feminized symbol connected to the country. And the one thing that we, I realize we haven't talked about a huge amount so far is the Bank of England building itself. I wonder what you could tell us about the history of that. Um, it has a wonderful architectural history, really, really interesting architectural history. Uh, it spends the first 40 odd years of its life in borrowed premises, first in Mercer's Hall and then in Grocer's Hall. Um, and then it moved to the Threadneedle Street site uh, in 1734. Um, and uh, The bank at all this time is growing hugely, growing and expanding, and it's taking up that space in Threadneedle Street and driving out the population around it. Um, And it has two aims here. One, it needs more space. It needs to grow. But also it's terrified of encroachments. So it's terrified of the wooden buildings that surround it and the potential for fire, which might destroy the bank's buildings, but also the very precious records uh, that are inside the bank. It's also terrified of riot. And the Gordon riots of 1780 show the bank just how vulnerable it is. Um, Up until that point, there's a church, St. Christopher's Stocks, right next to the bank. And the rioters use that church to try and get into the bank. Um, And soon after the riots, the bank um, directors call in a military engineer. um, And the military engineer uh, tries to get them to to fortify the bank. And they say, no, we can't, you know, we can't do that because it's a public institution. But the one thing they do is they buy up the church and they move out uh, the parishioners um, and they, they sort of take over the church and, and destroy it. Um, for those of you who visited the bank, uh, the garden that you see outside of the governor's office, uh, that's the old church graveyard. 
Um, and the bodies stayed there into the mid-19th century when they were moved out uh, to Nunhead Cemetery. Um, so the governor looks out over an old graveyard. Um, but the bank's um, continuing architectural change uh, from the 18th century is very much driven by the expansion of its business um, and the need for more space to, to take on um, uh, the business that it's being given by the state and the business that it expands into. Um, its most famous architect is probably John Soane. Um, there's not much left of John Soane's bank uh, other than the sort of curtain wall uh, that uh, surrounds the bank. Also, the courtroom is still the 18th century uh, courtroom uh, that was designed by Soane as well. Um, the bank that we see today, uh, which is 10 storeys high, uh, so there's the bit that you see above ground, bit, uh, quite a bit below ground as well, uh, that was designed by Herbert Baker in the mid-20th century. I know you were talking earlier about threats, just in that last question, about threats to the bank from outsiders. What about from the employees themselves? Because the bank held vast amounts of wealth. How easy was it to find employees who wouldn't be tempted maybe, you know, to help themselves to some of that? Um, it was surprisingly easy. Um, and I think throughout most of the 18th and 19th century, uh, this was because the bank didn't necessarily pay well, but it was a job for life. And uh, it was a job that if you took care of it, uh, gave you a decent income and a good pension at the end of it. Um, it was also a prestigious job. So, the, the, so most people took that as their main incentive. However, it was very easy for insiders to embezzle and defraud the bank. Uh, there were lots of points really up to the mid 19th century uh, where there were single points of failure uh, and there were people who could act without being checked upon. Um, there are relatively few people who do take advantage of that, but but there are there are some. Um, one of my favourites was Francis Fonten, uh, who in the 1790s falls in with the wrong crowd, having been a, an exemplary employee up until that point. Um, he falls in with a woman uh, who leads him astray. Uh, she's being influenced by a preacher who tells her that she can sin as much as she likes during the day uh, as long as she attends chapel uh, the next morning and asks for forgiveness of her sins. Uh, so she sort of draws Fonten into this world and they, they, they carry on sinning quite a bit. Um, and in order to pay for his newly found lifestyle, Fronten starts to use his position as one of the transfer office clerks uh, to steal shares uh, and to steal um, state debt and to steal dividends in order to pay for his lifestyle. Um, he is found out. Most of them um, who, who do this sort of thing are found out. And the bank exacts the ultimate penalty against them. So it prosecutes to the full extent of the law. Uh, and that usually means uh, execution for those who are, felt, uh, who are found guilty. And I think that's probably one of the other things that tends to keep clerks honest. They know that the bank will prosecute and they know that death awaits uh, those who are found guilty. That was Professor Anne Murphy. Her next book, Virtuous Bankers, A Day in the Life of the 18th Century Bank of England, is due to be published in 2023 by Princeton University Press. And if you're interested in finding out more about the history of banking, then why not check out the In Our Time episode on the gold standard? You can find that on BBC Sounds now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. 